For some of you, it's your first time. For others, it is not. But for today, I would like to welcome you all to Epic Realms. gentlemen and welcome to epic realms i'm your host nick and with me today is author editor and so much more eric scott to welcome eric how are you doing hey i'm doing great thanks thanks for having me i much appreciate you swinging by last time we chatted with you we worked uh promoting on the awakened books for samurai sheepdog uh, we had kevin gleasing on not long ago and we talked with Chris Jackson last week. He brought you up a couple of times, nothing but good things to say. And little did we know that you would be here the, the very next week after, after Chris was on here. Well, Chris and I are old friends. Whatever that old pirate said, you can't trust them. <laughs> I don't know about that. I, 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 I moonlight myself as a pirate from here from time to time. So Excellent. So you have all kinds of different works, whether it's anthologies, your own personal works, Forgotten Realms, editing for D&D, Wizards of the Coast, Paizo. Somewhere on the shelf behind Look at me. all that stuff. People don't start off, they're not born and like, hey, I've got these contracts to, that I got to fulfill at birth. Were you, when you were a kid and growing up, like, did you start with, did you start with reading books or did you start with role playing? How did, how did that, how did you get into that interest? Ah, cast my mind back. Yes. Let's see. So according to my mother, I was always interested in writing and in storytelling, but that didn't really crystallize until probably about fifth grade, which is when I started um, playing D&D. I found an old blue box in my um, parents' back room, uh, a blue box and a red box. And I was like, I was gone. Like that was the thing. I just loved it so much. I read those books just obsessively. Um, I think I had a copy of the old Keep on the Borderlands adventure too that had been shoved in the back of the box. Apparently my father had uh, tried it out in college and didn't really like it. Like he just bought some stuff to run a game or have somebody run a game or I wasn't sure if he was the DM or a player, but it all got foisted on him. And then it ended up in the back storage room. And I found it one day and thought it was the greatest thing ever. Of course, it wasn't because, you know, some of that early D&D is real janky, but that's okay. <laughs> you know, uh, the, the best thing about it was that it invited me to create stories and create characters and lead people through games. Often, literally, like people would be reading uh, would would be rolling dice and then I'd have to tell them what the dice meant because not many people understand Thacko even at the time. So they still don't. They yeah, still don't. Exactly. <laughs> so I would say my first gaming experience really um I played board games and such when I was when I was a kid, but the 
the RPGs really hit when I was about 10 in the early 90s um, with first edition. And then I quickly graduated to second edition, uh, which is what I found the cool kids playing. Now, uh, those of us who grew up gaming in the 80s and early 90s know that when I say the cool kids playing, uh, I'm being <laughs> a little facetious. Then. But they were the there were my friends that I looked up to in Boy Scouts. Uh, we single handedly got Dungeons and Dragons banned from our campouts <laughs> because on one campout we spent the entire night playing D and D until the sun came up, and the scout leaders were a impressed and b definitely sure that would never happen again. Uh, the next year we got uh, magic banned from boy scouts as well so wow yeah anyway um and it was about this time uh that i started being more serious about writing fiction um because you know i'm one of those people who writes detailed backstories i wrote backstories i wrote campaign stories i wrote how it should go and then my players get in there and it goes whoom <laughs> not at all how i expected which is Oh, the plight of a GM. Ah, yes. I was introduced to that very early. <laughs> and um, yeah, so gaming and writing have always gone hand in hand with me. Um, I wrote my first novel when I was 15. Don't worry, no one will have to read it. It's terrible. Um, I wrote my second novel when I was 16. Don't worry, no one will have to read it. It's terrible. Um, and then I kept writing a novel basically every year from that point on. Um, which means that I am <clears throat> somewhere around 20 novels in. Um, some of them have been published, some of them haven't. Um, I think for most writers, um, that's kind of a typical story. The key about being a writer is not um, only writing good stuff, it's only showing people the good stuff. You know, you're gonna write a lot of crap as well. And that's the stuff you just go <laughs> and just ignore. So when you were when you were doing that, did you take inspiration from some of your writing from other things? Was there any pop culture references, movies, music, oh. anything like that that you were taken oh. for? Oh yeah, absolutely. If you read those early books, um, which hopefully no one ever will, you will immediately know the um my fandoms as a young person which were the forgotten realms obviously ravenloft final fantasy okay yeah and star wars that's all stuff I can like get a big mixture of all those things um and it became a little less obvious as time went on until we get to now where it's fairly subtle most of the time Except for the times when I actually write actual Forgotten Realms novels. Sorry, I, I can't help it. I wrote five Forgotten Realms novels. Three of them are available in print. Two of them are ebook only. And I closed out the book department, which is to say, when Wizards decided they were going to stop publishing novels, mine were some of the last that they published. So I won. <laughs> you made yes, it. Yes, <laughs> I made it. Which is, uh, which is not to say that like, if Wizards ever decides to publish fiction again, they know my email, they know I'm interested. I have half of Shadowbane 4 written already. I could probably crank out the rest of it in about three weeks. So oh, there goes my next question. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that was on my list though of, of questions down the road, which will, we'll, uh, I'm glad to hear 
that because that's something that I'm sure people that are listening want to know if that's if that's absolutely I, I would I would love to carry on that story. If you've read the books, you know that it doesn't end in a like at an end point. It ends in a way that like that could be the end point, but there's still a lot to do. There's still a lot to explore, a lot of a lot of villains that are that haven't got their comeuppance, a lot of mysteries that haven't been resolved. I have so much more to do. Um, my Twitch game that I'm running, the Westgate Irregulars, which I'm running on the Dungeon Scrollers uh, stream, uh, there will be links somewhere in the doobly-doo, is kind of a little bit of continuation of those Shadowbane stories. Like characters from the books do show okay. up in the campaign. Oh, they usually take supporting roles. Occasionally, they take antagonistic roles, which is it's real exciting because my players are like, "Oh my god, we're fighting someone from Eric's books," and then they're like, "Oh my god, we're fighting someone from Eric's books. We can't possibly <laughs> kill them. He won't let that happen," which is not true. I have let that happen on a right. couple of occasions in the right. stream so far. So yeah, it's a it's a good time. That's it's a good exciting. time. Did you um did you ever have issues with with balancing as a kid or college balancing um your love of gaming and role playing and writing with schoolwork or you know life I guess uh, Nick I suppose I'm going to disappoint you I was an extremely adept student I was straight <laughs> A's all through high school I got two A minuses and one B plus in college everything else was straight A's. I was the valedictorian at my high school. I gave a speech. I don't remember what the speech was about. That's I good. One, I have I one won't very, ask you to read it. <laughs> I have one very vivid memory of that day, which is some lady coming up to me and asking, are you a Christian? And I'm like, yes. And she's like, good, I thought so. And then she just walks off. And I'm like, okay. That was the thing. Good, that, that was the thing that happened. <laughs> All right. All right, cool, cool. Um, I'm glad it worked for her. Right. When people enjoy my work and they enjoy my speeches or they enjoy my jokes, whatever, I, I'm just happy. I like spreading happiness to people. Right. If people don't like it, well, I sympathize. Um, you know, it's possible that I wrote something that, you know, just didn't work for you. And there's lots of stuff out there. Not everyone's going to like everything. And that's just an attitude you kind of got to have to be a writer and not drive yourself insane. How did you go from the point of having, you know, you, I wrote this and I wrote a novel and it was no good. And I wrote a novel, it was no good. But then you write a novel and it gets published. And then you start getting your foot into the door. Like, where does that, where does that bridge happen? Well, uh, you ask a hundred writers this question, you'll get 150 different stories. My story goes like this. I wrote my first novel at 15. I wrote a bunch of novels just practicing basically from there. I was never really intending to sell them or publish them or even really share them with a lot of people. Occasionally friends, family, like, hey, you really liked Final Fantasy VII? I wrote a sequel novel to Final Fantasy VII. Would you like to read my fan fiction? You wouldn't. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> anyway, uh, true story. And um, in college, um, I had basically kind of got to the point where I'm just writing for my own enjoyment and the enjoyment of people that I know like the same things that I do. I wasn't really thinking, like I had given up on writing as a profession. Writing as a profession is not very lucrative. Like there are thousands of writers out there, especially among fantasy writers. One or 2% of us 
can make a living doing this. Not me. I have a day job. I work at a medical device company as a tech writer. So I'm actually using my degree. That's what we're saying. Okay. English major using his degree. Winning Yay. again. Yeah. But um, but yeah, like if you're if you're considering writing, go into a day job. That was my strategy in college. And I had a major medical incident when I was in college. I had a brain tumor, in fact, on my uh, cerebellum, which uh, complicated coordination and movement and things like that. And well, I almost died, but the doctor did fix it, right? I had two surgeries, one of them in January when I was a freshman in college, one of them in July of the same year. Uh, they got it out entirely. I've been pronounced cured. It's it's a pilocytic astrocytoma. After a certain number of years, you're just, it's not gonna grow. If it hasn't started growing back, it's not going to. So don't worry about it, I'm fine. That's, I didn't is, know that. Yeah, well, very few people do. So I, I had this major life-changing moment. It was basically a near-death experience that I had. And I said, fuck, I got to do something with this writing that I'm doing, right? It's got to go somewhere. It's got to get out there for people, for people to read it. I'm not sure how much longer I really have. Coming face to face with your own mortality as a 18, 19 year old kid is, it's heavy. It's a lot. And I said, okay, I'm just going to keep writing and I'm going to keep pushing things out there. And that's more or less what I've been doing ever since. I've become a little more jaded and less optimistic over time because, you know, that's just a natural result of aging. But um, shortly after that experience, a couple of years after that experience, Wizards of the Coast had an open call for a novel. Uh, it was called The Maiden of Pain. There's a novel in the Priest series. The Priest series is four books about priests of different uh, priesthoods in mm -hmm. the realms. Uh, in their third edition, turning into 3.5 era. And uh, it was an open call. Anyone could submit for it. Write the first chapter, write the outline of the novel, push it through. And I was like, you know what? Almost died. Better do this. And I just, and I did it. And I lost. I did not win that open call. Cameron okay. Franklin won that open call. And he wrote a novel called The Maiden of Pain, which is, you know, you can go on the go buy it. It's on the shelf or, well, it's out of print now, but you can get it on Amazon or whatever. Right. And, um, but I lost well enough that wizard said, ah, so you 20 ish people who lost well enough, we're going to keep you for a closed call. And that's closed call. It's going to be for two more novels. And then those of you who don't get those, we're still going to keep you around because we see that you have talent and potential. And I won that one. And that was what Ghostwalker uh, okay. came from. Okay. I, I want to say that of the two Ghostwalker novels, mine was the one that they wanted to actually call Ghostwalker. And the other one they called Bloodwalk. The funny thing is that um, <laughs> the author of Bloodwalk, James Davis, and I both wrote a pitch for the Ghostwalker novel. Actually, a bunch of people wrote pitches for Ghostwalkers because Ghostwalker is really awesome. And Wizards liked both of them, but they couldn't take both of them, right? Because one was for a fighter's novel and one was for a wizard's novel. And they said, okay, well, Mr. Davis, 
we want you to change around your book to make it be about the antagonist who was a blood magus. And he was like, yeah, okay. So that's why we have two novels that came out near about the same time, both focusing on a ghost walker as the, as the, uh, as the good guy. So, oh, yeah. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. And then from there, is that from when- From there, they kept me around for a while. Did you do other stuff between that and the, the down, yeah, down shadow? Um, I didn't, my first novel outside of the realms, I think was Scourge of the Realm, which was um, an independent uh, book that, that came out from, oh man, now I completely forgot. Oh, I'm so sorry. Scott, I'm so sorry. I know the name of the publisher, but I, I forgot the name of the uh, publishing company. Uh, but they're known for doing kind of like uh, indie uh, experimental. There'll be a link in the doobly-doo for everybody who's interested. Uh, they're known for doing kind of indie experimental boundary pushing stuff. Um, Scourge of the Realm is about, we've all, oh, Broken Eye Books. Thank you, Lapis Lazuli. Ah, I don't know why I didn't remember that. Uh, man, the chat is so helpful. I'm glad that it you're is. keeping me honest, chat. Thanks for that. Oh, yeah, it's Gabrielle. She edits uh, novels that I write from time to time. Awesome. Thanks, Gabrielle. You keep me honest. Anyway, uh, okay, so Scourge of the Realm. Here's how it goes down. We've all played D&D a lot. You're familiar with the group of adventurers from different walks of life who come together to fight a great evil that threatens the kingdom. They overthrow this great evil. The heroic leader of the party marries the princess becomes the new king etc cetera, etc cetera, end of campaign right We've all, we're all familiar with that concept mm -hmm. well scourge of the realm takes place afterward where power has corrupted those heroes who are now the leaders of the realm into worse villains than the people that they fought in the first place okay and the only person who can save the realm is the the dark-haired princess not the princess that the barbarian married okay her younger sister, who would have been like a like a bit NPC that the DM threw at you saying, hey, do you like this person? No? Eh, okay, fine. And then uh, now she has to leave, recruit the villains that they faced in the first place to put together a party to throw them, to overthrow their government and save the kingdom. Led by the main manipulator villain who was in the original campaign. That's what my book is about. Is this is this coming together group of villains saving the kingdom? Nice. So, and that's Scourge of the Realm because they're the Scourge. The Scourge of the, of the Realm. realm. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Nice. Um, and from there, I wrote uh, several other novels outside of the realms. My World of Ruin series, which we're going to talk about a little bit later, I think. Yeah. Um, I started the genesis of right. Wow, that was so redundant. I started right. writing it way back in the early 2000s and the first one came out at least 10 years after that. So that is a series that I've been working on for a very long time and shipping around to different publishers. One of the things is that I don't and never have had an agent. Uh, agents watching this, give me a call. All right. But <laughs> generally speaking, um, all of my work has been through direct negotiation with publishers, uh, connections with uh, editors that I know who were like, yeah, send me that thing. So yeah, I would love to have an agent to do all this work for me. I like writing. I don't like publishing. Publishing right. is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, 
so eventually kind of eventually long-winded answer but eventually they pulled you back for the shadow Bane's books yes yes they did um down shadow which came out in 2009 i think um was the first of those books it uh technically fits in a series called ed greenwood presents waterdeep uh which is a series of books about waterdeep right the city and the realms um biggest metropolitan well biggest asterisk metropolitan city in the realms there are actually potentially larger cities in the realms but right. waterdeep is maybe the most famous yeah sorry i gotta give uh some you know nod to the lore bot part of my brain um and the whole concept of that series was to produce um, a set of novels that could potentially spin off into more stories about those characters or just establish some more writers. Um, Aaron Evans' first Forgotten Realms novel was in that series, uh, The Godcatcher. She is better known nowadays for her work on the Brimstone Angels series, which if you haven't read it, you should, definitely should. It's uh, two twenty flame girls um getting into trouble in the realms one of them makes a warlock pact that's that's what i mean so it's great um and they're very and they're long-suffering disapproving dragonborn adoptive father so yeah um anyway down shadow turned into the first book of its own series which was going to be an ongoing series the second book is called shadowbane the third book is called shadowbane eye of justice I have Justice is an organization that the main character was trained in in Westgate back in the day before the series started. Um, people often call Shadowbane the Batman of the realms, which I'm not sure is strictly accurate. I mean, he does have a secret identity. He is a mild-mannered guardsman by day. Um, he does swoop out of the night and attack people in darkness. Um, he does have a code of ethics. He does have a code of ethics. He is a paladin rogue, which is, a, is an unusual combination. It worked better in 3.5 than it did in 4E, which is ironic because that series was 4E contemporaries. So it wasn't until the Player's Handbook 2 came out and it had the Avenger in it that I realized that Shadowbane was really an Avenger, not a paladin. Uh, and so his 4E class is Avenger. Um, now in 5e, he's back to being a rogue paladin because you can make that work mechanically. Right. Did he, did that, so did that first, did the first book, Down Shadow, did that take place during the 3 5 era or did that, was that first book ah, after? Good question. So, um, Wizards of the Coast, decisions were made. <laughs> okay. That's what we're going <laughs> to say. Uh, but when 4e launched, they launched it in conjunction with um, several novels. Uh, Bob had some stuff, right? Um, and uh, Richard Baker had um, the Blades of the Moon Sea series, which started with 4E. Um, and he was writing about a, not a blade singer, but like a, a sword mage, which was a thing you could be in, in 4E, right? Right. Was it, it was a pretty cool class. I played a sword mage for a long time. Very cool. Um, and also the Ed Greenwood Presents series. Um, the Ed Greenwood Presents series was specifically designed to reassure people that the realms, even though it had changed dramatically, a hundred years had passed, 
people died, things happened, oh my God, um, had not really changed all that much. The realms was still the realms. And so our books were very much supposed to be like, like transitional. Okay. To, tie, to bring you over into 4E to say, this is still your setting. So when I wrote Down Shadow, I was writing from a very, a very, what is true and good about the realms and also uh, what is moving forward. And that has been pretty much my, my MO with realms writing. I'm always pushing us a little bit forward whilst also honoring stuff that has come before. Back in Ghostwalker, I had references to Drizzt fighting a thousand orcs and how, you know, the evil bard mayor of the town refused to sing that song because no one would believe that, right? Right. You know, and, and I, I would just put in all these Easter eggs and stuff because, you know, I'm a huge realms nerd. Right, right. And that was kind of why I was asking that because it's obviously like a lot of the authors that were around before and then after that transition had to deal with that transition and how right. they were going to how they were going to tackle that for their books. Yeah. So I wasn't sure if that was something you really had to deal with or if you were like right out on that cusp so you were pretty much safe as far as that was concerned. Yeah. There were there were definitely challenges to it because we had to walk that very difficult um taut tight rope to get from one edition to the next over what was definitely going to be a problematic and uh, polarizing change. Mm -hmm. Some people really grabbed onto 4E and some people consider that their favorite version of D&D. But I mean, generally speaking, it was not a huge success. Yeah. <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't land very well. It didn't last very long. Right. And I mean, we could, we could make this whole stream about the mistakes and, and hazards of 4E. And I actually have some great links that I can provide. I was going to say, maybe I should do that. Maybe I should get a couple people on to talk about 4E. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll shoot over those links to you. And uh, <laughs> like they go through the whole, like the context of what was happening at Wizards when 4E was happening, um, including a murder-suicide, which some people don't even know about. No. It, was, it was a huge mess. Wow. Anyway, we're on 5e. People like it for good reason. Right. Yeah, that's great. Uh, <laughs> so. You did some work on some campaign setting books as well. So not just novels that for 4th edition, correct? That is definitely the case. They're too far away from me. To that's reach. okay. But I worked on the- People Gloom on the Rot. podcast can't see it anyhow. <laughs> I worked on the Gloomrot box set, which uh, is all about the Shadowfell. And that was real fun. And I worked on the Neverwinter campaign setting, which- I think is one of the more successful legacy items from 4E. A lot of people, like you can still go back <clears throat> to grab that book and still run 5E games out of it because the design of the Neverwinter campaign setting is a little bit lore setting timeline agnostic. Like the areas that we describe, the settings that are there can be pulled into any other edition of D&D. Um, you don't have to play 4E to play that setting. Obviously all the stat blocks and stuff are definitely 4E stat blocks, but um, they only make up part of the book. And that was a, uh, that was a design philosophy that Wizards embraced for a while. Uh, Menza Baranzan, uh, the City of Intrigue is like that too. 
although it's even more obvious there because yeah. there are actual different timelines that you could set your Menza Berenzan gain in uh, from 1E era when Drizzt was born to uh, the 4E era where just some real wild stuff is going on. I don't want to spoil that book. It's a really good book. You should yeah. pick that up if you get a chance. There's definitely, and 3.5 had a lot of books like that. Like when I got, uh -huh. when, when I transitioned from 3, three five, there were a handful of books. I was like, I'm keeping this because it's got a lot of really great information, especially the realms books. Like a lot of those just had a lot of great, just knowledge and information storyline lines where it's like, it didn't matter what the stack blocks were. The, yeah, the that's information. One the, that's one of the strengths of the D and D settings of the realms in particular, but also uh, Ravenloft, also Dark Sun, mm -hmm. uh, all of them. They Everyone. have, yeah, Eberron, great example. They have this kind of timeless feel that you can you can pull stuff from previous editions. I break out my Cloak and Dagger book from second edition Forgotten Realms mm -hmm. in my stream regularly because a lot of Westgate stuff is based on that book. So. Yeah. Yeah, Pirates of the Fallen Stars was one of my my go tos to always see. We're talking about pirates again. Uh, <laughs> that's one of the go tos. Like I kept that one, and that wasn't three eight. That was that was second edition. And yeah. there's just so much great information in there that if you want to run something, you don't need to have the stat blocks. So I totally get that. So beyond beyond that, you've also done work with Paizo and Peterson Games. You were just telling me about Peterson Games, right? Um, most of that has been editing work. Mm -hmm. And the editing work I was talking to you before is less flashy, right? right? It, you know, your name doesn't get out there so much as an entertainer, as a support member, which is totally fine. I've edited a few Paizo things um, in both Pathfinder 1E and Pathfinder 2E, which, which has been nice. Um, Galarian reminds me a lot of the realms in a lot of ways, although it kind of puts this extra progressive edge on things, which I enjoy because I tend to be relatively progressive myself in my outlook. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the Peterson game stuff, um, Peterson games, Sandy Peterson runs Peterson games. Um, Sandy Peterson is the guy who created the Call of Cthulhu game way back in the day. And uh, it has recently, um, he, some years ago, uh, broke away from Chaosium, I believe, who or the people who owned it. And now there are two companies that own sort of Cthulhu stuff. Anyone could do Cthulhu stuff to yeah. some extent, but as long as the Lovecrafting and yeah. house says, yeah, that's okay. If they give the right. seal of approval, you're good. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to weigh in on the legalities, but generally right. Chaosium is doing stuff and Peterson Games is doing stuff. And they have some, uh, they specifically created um, rule books, like big honkin' source books for how to play all the Cthulhu stuff in D&D, in Pathfinder, in Pathfinder 2. And I edited all of those books. And man, they were big. Like we're talking 600 pages of, you know, setting source book stuff. And it's a lot. And I've also worked on the uh, adventure um they had they also had a series of kind of adventure paths similar to how Paizo did adventure paths they'd be slim books with like three acts in a uh, in an adventure and then there'd be four of those books into an entire campaign and uh i was one of their chief editors on 
getting that line up and going. I'm currently working on one, although I, I don't know exactly how it's, if it's been announced. So I'm not so, going to say the name of yeah, that one. That's understandable. But I worked on Ghoul Island and I worked on uh, Spawn Dance and I worked on Have You Found It? And I worked on uh, the one that's about time travel and YIG. Anyway, one of those, Ghoul Island, which was, I think, the first adventure path that I worked on, they came to me and said, hey, you want to write some fiction that goes along with this? Because we know you're a fiction writer. You like writing fiction. And I said, sure, that sounds great. And they're like, okay, how about a 10,000 word story? And I'm like, I cannot capture your campaign in 10,000 words. words. Yeah. And they're like, okay, how about four 10,000 word stories? And I'm like, I don't think I can do that either, but we'll try. And so I tried and I utterly failed. And each one is about 20,000 words. So I wrote a total of 80,000 words about Ghoul Island, which is essentially a walkthrough of the campaign, but speed running. Yeah. We all know a D&D campaign can go on for years. Yes. And you cannot capture an entire campaign in a single book. Unless you're Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman, but that's another story. <laughs> so um, I basically wrote a novel for Ghoul Island. You can find it on the Peterson Games um, site or on Amazon. And uh, yeah, it's basically one particular path through the campaign. It misses some of the stuff. It's not going to spoil things for you, hopefully. Uh, it's just one potential way through. So yeah. You've also done cool. a bunch of anthologies. Accidentally wrote that novel. Okay, well, that's nothing wrong with accidental novels, especially if yeah. you're getting paid for, right? Exactly. <laughs> You've also done a bunch of anthologies mm -hmm. and to go back uh, the intro of down shadow, there was a nice little write-up that Ed Greenwood had put in there about mm -hmm. how he bought four of those books just because he knew he was going to burn through the damn things, reading them over and over again. And I'm guessing that felt really good to get that, to get that intro to your book. Definitely. Especially being, as you said, one of your first campaigns was forgotten realms and here you've got the guy that made it giving you this this big thumbs up like the city that i put together you've made so fleshed out that i've bought a ton of them because i'm just going to read your work over and over again it was very very flattering ed and i are old friends we met in 2008 and i went to gen con for the first time i'm pretty sure it was 2008 it might have been 2007 we won't quote you. I'm not sure. It's one of those two. And and I can never remember and no one else can ever remember. Dif my friends differ about it. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I first met Ed then and I was starstruck, fanboy all over the place. And Ed is just a chill, down to earth, relaxed dude. I don't know if you've interviewed him on your uh, we, stream. We did on, on the old, uh, we did on the old episode on the old podcast so we you, had him once or twice you know what i'm saying he yeah. is and we do have him coming up uh next month month after he'll be coming back so awesome yeah he makes he makes you feel comfortable and he makes you feel welcome and that was just very moving to me and you know i was so pleased because i got to honor you know something that he put so much of his own life and work into mm -hmm. like the realms had given me so much enjoyment I got a chance to give a little bit of enjoyment back to Ed and that was pretty great. So it's a, it's a great feeling. It's, yeah. um, and fiction can do this uh, for writers, for readers. It's just a way to connect people who might not ever meet in person. 
you can have that same uh, empathetic connection uh, through the written word across thousands of miles, across decades or centuries. And um, it's a really special feeling. Yeah. And then he pulled you in onto the, his Helma series. That's true. That is absolutely what happened. Um, the Helma series, uh, it, it's a great and tragic story. Yeah, it's bittersweet. Yeah, <laughs> it's bittersweet. Chris, the, uh, 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 Chris was talking about it a little bit as well. Yeah, I'm sure Chris talked your ear off about it. Essentially, um, one of the things about that you have to know about Ed is that Ed is extremely creative and he's an ideas guy. He had at one point 20 or 30 different novel settings. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying novels. I'm not saying series. I'm right. saying settings. settings. Storm Talons was one. Helma was one. And there were others. There was one called Lost Princesses of Mars. Okay. Which is kind of like. That was the fake name that he used for a while there, wasn't it? Like the, 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 this is what we're working on before it got changed to. Yeah, although I'm pretty sure that was uh, that 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 yeah. was the intended name, right? Anyway, right. but yeah, it's this it's space opera, John Carter of Mars kind of stuff. Yeah, and it was it was amazing. Um, I started writing. I wrote three novels: one for Helma, one for Storm Talons, and one for that sci-fi setting. The Helma one actually came out. Yep, and. Phew, that's a dark book. I don't know if you've read it. I don't know if anyone on the stream has read it, but I, it is I have a, it on my I have it on my wish list. On okay, uh, yeah, I, I do have it on my wish list. I'm not. I've said this a million times. The people listening to the podcast know, I have I have finite amount of time, so I spend my day yeah, listening yeah, to audiobooks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because I spend a lot of my time on the road, so I get to spend all that time listening to audiobooks. So sitting down with physical books is not me. Whereas my wife can sit down and she'll open up a book and then she'll close it at the end of the day and she'll be like, done. <laughs> what? <laughs> Audiobooks are a great innovation. Highly so, recommended. So yeah. yes, I, I haven't, it is on my list. Actually, all the Hellbaugh books are on my list. Um, and on, you know, some, some, I believe, I believe all of them, but maybe only some of them are on Audible. Yeah. I listened to the entire Jim Butcher series on uh, audiobook read by james marshers yes, which is amazing series remarkable amazing like like you could tell he's british at times but jesus man such such good work uh james marshers played spike on buffy for those of you who were like that name sounds familiar right anyway. yeah he does an amazing job on that book series yeah uh, um and and helma was kind of organized to be an urban fantasy sort of setting mm -hmm. where these demons from this other world would come over well, demons they're they're really alien beings that feast on uh souls so bad guys bad, bad guys bad guys <laughs> yeah but you know we would consider them to be demons um uh gabrielle who i mentioned earlier uh also has a helma book uh called of the essence i believe that book uh, is kind of, well, they're all out of print. The publisher basically went under, all those books are gone. It's hard to find most of them. Hers is a little more lighthearted than mine. It's, it's about a, a genie, I believe, trying to make her way through the, uh, the dark urban underworld of Europe, 
Uh, I think it was in London. It's been a while since I've read the book. Really good, highly recommended. My book, which is called Blind Justice, because everything I write is about justice in some regard. Oh, it's on Audible still. Thanks for that, Gabrielle. Uh, yeah, definitely recommended. Blind Justice uh, is about this demon who comes to earth and hunts down people that she considers evil and specifically evil in an abusive way. Like they particularly abuse women, but also marginalized groups of, of various sorts. And the uh, FBI profiler who's trying to track down this demon and stop her reign of terror. And it is, whew, it goes to some places. That's what I'm going to say. Dark is what you're saying. Dark. Yes. <laughs> that book is out of print. It has reverted to me and I am trying to repackage it and put it out there again um, in a different, slightly different form, not using the same setting. Right. Um, this is something that authors do from time to time. Yeah. And Chris had mentioned that again, mm -hmm. backtracking a little bit, but he mentioned that any of the works that really didn't get published, a lot of you guys got back to use. Do you see the other, because you said you wrote some other stuff as well for those settings. Do you see those coming out in other forms? We'll see. We'll see. Okay. Yeah, we'll see. Fair enough. You also worked on the Awakened series, which we chatted about mm -hmm. a bit. Uh, obviously, we've talked about before. Uh, how did how did they approach you for that? For the for the Awakened? Do you recall? I think it was a conversation at Gen Con that turned into an email conversation or uh, someone that they were working with recommended me. I don't I don't remember exactly how it went, but they described the concept, which is, you know, um, there's this there's this specific phase of the moon people when they reach a certain point in their uh, growing up uh, might develop magic powers or uh, a, an attachment with an animal like a familiar sort of situation which I thought was great like there's so much so wide a scope of stories that you could tell through that lens and um, yeah I think I wrote three awakened stories there's one in Awaken 1, one in Awaken 2, and one in Awaken Modern, as I yeah. recall. And they're all radically different. Yeah, but, none, of them, um, none of them follow the same character, if I recall. No, not at all. <laughs> definitely, definitely different characters. Speaking of, that, I mean, you just mentioned the Jim Butcher series. You also worked on Shadowed Souls, which Jim Butcher had a story in with the That's Dresden right. Files. Uh, yeah, um, Jim Butcher and my, uh, and my good friend, Carrie Hughes, um, who is a, uh, an editor on a lot of anthologies, uh, put together this um, urban fantasy anthology. And um, Jim contributed a story to it and he was also one of the editors. So he read through everyone's story. He gave feedback, um, all of that. He coordinated that whole thing. Um, Shadowed Souls is a great anthology. It's very popular. Um, it's been through a couple of reprintings, I think. Uh, there's a hardcover and a softcover version of it. I have both on my shelf. They're very pretty. Uh, anyway, my story is about my character, Lady Vengeance, who is a, um, a superhero. She has fear-based powers. Um, I call her power set Empathic Projection. She absorbs people's uh, emotions uh, best. She's best at fear. And then she can sculpt that energy into quasi-real objects or enchant people. It's basically like fear magic that she has. Okay. But she also has an issue where when her powers first manifested, 
she was possessed by a demon that has not left her. And so she was possessed by a demon which attempted to use her and her newfound powers to take over the world. So her family and friends who were superheroes older than her defeated her and stopped her from trying to do her evil thing. But the demon has never left. And so she constantly is living with this demon in the back of her head, whispering to her and suggesting to her things to do, ways to feel, just tormenting her. And one thing makes the demon speak less, bother her less. And it makes the emotions that she absorbs from people because she is an empath, right? Less, it, it puts up this barrier and that's being drunk out of her mind. So she basically is dealing with alcoholism in basically every story that she's in. Um, and it, her level of power is inversely proportional to how much she drinks, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of the situations that she finds herself in, she needs to use her powers. And that involves less self-medicating. And um, man, a lot of my characters really need to see a therapist. It is <laughs> definitely the case. A lot of little dark, dark characters is what you're saying with some yeah, dark one backgrounds of her, and issues. One of, one of her exes who shows up in the, in the Justice Vengeance novel um you're making up for all them straight a's with that that's what's going on exactly her her ex-joyfriend is a therapist uh they became a um a psychotherapist partly out of dealing with v back in the day okay (laughs) and um it's it's funny because there's this great scene in the novel. I know I'm talking about a novel that hasn't been released yet and is going to be part of a kickstarter eventually all right There'll be links, whatever. Uh, but Ren is their name. They're sitting in their office. They're just doing their job, looking through their files, and they get this phone call. And V's like, I need help. And Ren's like, I haven't talked to you in 20 years. I thought you were dead. And she's like, Yeah, I know, but I need help. <laughs> and Ren puts down the phone and calls calls their secretary and says, okay, I need you to cancel all of my appointments for the rest of the day. And they're like, and the secretary's like, are you all right? And then Ren's like, fine, I'm fine. Hangs up the phone, destroys the office. (laughs) Before finding, you know, their their mask and outfit from when they were a costume hero and says, I I was never going to put this back on. And now they God damn it, V. (laughs) So, man. Well, from one superhero story to the other, you also worked on Cobalt City. Right. Uh, Cobalt City actually um, has V show up from time to time. Okay. Uh, she's kind of a like a shared character between my universe and Nate Crowder's Cobalt City universe. It Did you have, what, that, three books for that? Yeah, something like that. Um, the largest, excuse me, the largest one was called Eye for an Eye, which mm-hmm. is... Um, specifically a cobalt city justice vengeance crossover v shows up gets in big trouble has a an angry ex who is basically um the uh the latino batman coming after her and she runs to uh stardust who is well i think of him as being a very jovial iron man but nate's original intention was for him to be more like booster gold anyway um (laughs) (laughs) for help and then v and stardust like 
sort of work together and they clash and they bounce off each other, but they develop this deep friendship. And it, it was a very interesting book to write. And uh, it has kind of spiraled from there into more stuff in that universe. Yeah, Dark um, Carnival, I think, was one of the other ones. Yeah, Dark Carnival. I, I think my story is about, uh, if I recall, it was like 10, 15 years ago. Um, <laughs> the chat is like, ah, Batman well showed <laughs> yeah, up. I, saw that. Like, <laughs> I was trying not to laugh. <laughs> His name was Antonio, but yeah, yeah, it's absolutely accurate. <laughs> um, Dark Carnival, let's see. So I think that was about Stardust having a bringing his family to this carnival, which is overrun by dark magic. If you know Nate, um, and you should, because his works are great. Um, he loves this concept of urban fantasy mixed with carnival stuff. Like the show Carnival, that's kind of his jam. I'm currently okay. playing in a game with him. It's a, a, it's a cypher game. It's a 19, end of the 19th century uh gaslight with magic london game okay. so sort of like uh sherlock holmes jack the ripper and fairies right and um we the first adventure went to a dark screwed up carnival anyway um yeah in the dark carnival uh anthology is a series of uh, stories about superheroes going to this evil carnival that sets up shop outside of town and i have two stories in it one stardust takes his family there and then has um an experience where he thinks they got kidnapped and is freaked out about it and then two um the final story in that anthology is by all of the authors in the anthology we all work together to write this like the superheroes avengers team up to go take out the dark carnival nice and and Oh man, that was one of the best writing experiences. We were all in Rosemary Jones's living room. Rosemary Jones, another Realms writer who's done yeah. some other things. She recently published a novel called The Silver Mask from Aconite. It's a, uh, a Cthulhu uh, Arkham Horror thing. Okay. Um, I think uh, The King in Yellow is the entity oh, that one is nice. refers to. It's one of my anyway. favorite. One of my favorite Cthulhu characters is The King in Yellow. <laughs> right? Anyway, so we're sitting in her living room and we all have our laptops and we're all writing because we're all writing the story together in one Google Doc <laughs> and occasionally just chatting with each other. It's the closest I've been to a fictional colla a collaborative fiction writing room ever. And it was amazing. Highly recommended. Awesome. Oh, chat just asked a great question. What one book or series would you recommend for someone wanting to start reading your books? Either Ghostwalker, Downshadow, or my World of Ruin series, which we'll talk about at some point. Yeah. Nick told me that he wants to talk about that later. I do so. want to, uh, before we get to that, I do want to mention, uh, since we were talking about kind of a noir sort of theme, the tales of Basil and Mobius, which uh, ah. was was brought up and... I hadn't heard of it, and but then all of a sudden, everybody wanted to hear about it. So Excellent. what can you tell us about it? Okay, so uh, you had Chris on last week, and we he did. described it. I don't know if I'm going to describe it the same way, but here we go. So Basil Mobius is a, an urban fantasy series that would happen if Indiana Jones and James Bond teamed up to go... Uh, do a series of missions for a Cthulhu monster disguised as a person. 
and they fight all manner of eldritch horrors and evil sorcerers from prehistoric times and one very scary vampire ghoul lady who i created in my story the machine which is in one of the uh one of the basil and mobius books i think it's does this series kind of sound like it's an accumulation of the themes of all of the stuff we've covered so far right yeah um well uh ryan schifrin who is the um he's a hollywood dude um he's the brains behind the basil and mobius ip um when he brought me in he was like so you mostly write fantasy right and i'm like yeah he's like okay so we have basil and mobius in the modern day but they have previous versions like other people that the collector has cursed branded to do his bidding uh there are these two guys who are ghouls uh, for a while and they're chasing Basil Mobius and that's a whole thing. And I'm like, so you want me to write about them? He's like, no, 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 no. I want you to write about their middle ages equivalent. And I'm like, you crazy bastard I'm in. <laughs> so their mid, their uh, middle ages equivalent um, in the early 13th century are called Yorick and Spitz. And uh, they're both former crusaders, like they met in the Holy Land and okay. were and witnessed things no one should see during the Crusades. Um, Spitz has PTSD from uh, the sacking of Constantinople and man, <laughs> he has episodes. Um, anyway, and then uh, they fought, um, I always mix this up, Zan Azir, who is uh, the evil wizard who is fighting Basil and Mobius in the modern day. But of course, he's centuries old. And so they fight him in the Middle Ages, too. And um, I was like, OK, I can't have too much of Yorick and Spitz clashing with, with Zahn. Because if I do, they're going to kill him or they're going to change him or something's going to have to happen. Because if a story happens and there's no change, then you're just vamping. You're not really right. telling something that has real weight to it. So I needed an intermediary. So I came up with Estelle, also known as the Star Lady. Estelle is basically a, a barmaid that Yorick had a relationship with. And then it turns out that she was a, I'm gonna spoil the machine story. Um, it turns out she was a traitor working for Zan Azir. But at the same time, she didn't want them to get hurt, right? She wanted York and Spitz to get out of things safely, even though Zanazir was coming to attack the collector. And she was she got them on a boat and she was going to get them out. And then they realized she was a traitor and they killed her and she fell overboard. Well, Zanazir found her body, reanimated her as a ghoul vampire lady, and then she is now their antagonist. Okay. So there's this, there's this large um very complicated dynamic among the three of them because Yorick and Estelle had this very strong romantic relationship before she became this creature and they still have feelings for each other. And Spitz constantly takes one look at her and is like, nope, nope, <laughs> no. <laughs> Yorick, you stay away from that lady. And he's like, I, I hate her. I am not going near her. Yorick is this big hulking, um, 
barbarian sort and spitz is like the the dashing dandy with the you know it it's the fafford and the gray mouser yeah, uh, yeah relationship right and he's like no i'm not going anywhere near her and spitz is like really and he's like <laughs> yes and then the next chapter they're like you know they meet up they fight they have sex and then spitz shows up and he's like what did i tell you <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it's great I just finished writing a, um, a piece of their forthcoming book called God Slayer. That's all I'm going to say about it. Just the title. Okay. It's great. Do you know um, if that would Chris be wrote in it? Uh, I'm not sure. Okay. I'd have to, I'd have to ask Ryan about it. Uh, but yeah, it, it features the fictional talents of uh, Chris Jackson, who you talked about with last week, uh, Richard Byers, uh, Timothy Zahn, which I'm sure some of your audience will recognize. I told Nick about Tim's on earlier Uh-oh. and he He's was like, going to throw me under the bus. And I'm like, Oh my God. But, but I get that he's that you're not really a diehard star Wars guy. Timothy That's... Zahn wrote a bunch of extended universe star Wars novels. Um, I think Tim is credited for basically starting the whole, um, the whole growth of the extended universe like oh, okay. his his extended universe novels were of such high quality um uh he's the one who originated the character of grand admiral thrawn oh instance. okay excellent um and mara jade also came from him just like these legendary aspects so while i didn't read a lot of them one of the reasons was I had about 20 friends who wouldn't stop telling me about them from beginning yeah. to end. So I didn't yeah. need to read them. I knew the stories from 30 <laughs> well, people go. telling me about them daily. Yeah. Uh, we're an old West. We had, we, we played the old West end games, die oh, six, yeah. star mm-hmm, Wars. Mm-hmm. So we, we ran, I was, I was educated third hand. <laughs> Man. Um, I was going to say one more thing about Basil Mobius. And then I want to say yeah. something about star Wars West end games. Uh, Basil Mobius also features some writing from Larry Hama, who you may recognize if you're into comic books, um, but he is he has written a lot of stuff in the last few years, uh, the last few decades, um, legend in the industry. Um, Star, Star Wars. Okay, so when my friends tried the West End Games system, um, we signed the wrong person to be our GM. <laughs> <laughs> you, you understand Sorry. people who have been who have played rpgs you know what i mean when you when you, you pick the wrong person to run the game for you and i i love this guy to death he's great his games are fun he ran D for us very successfully he's currently running pathfinder for us somewhat successfully and <laughs> and and he, he's fine but star wars that game just it went nowhere and I kind of, I, I didn't do Star Wars role-playing for a long, long time until about, I think seven or eight years ago, I was in a gaming group with a bunch of uh, game designer people, including Rodney Thompson, who is the world's largest Star Wars fan. And that's not a crack about his size. That's just, he loves Star Wars to death. Um, Rodney is also the guy who created well, he's one of the principal designers on uh, Watsi's um, version of the Star Wars role-playing game, okay. the D20 version. Yeah. Um, and I, I think a lot of that came about because of his will and love of the setting. So he's like, I want to run Star Wars for you guys. And we're like, yes, 
obviously, yes. Why wouldn't we do this? Right. He said, I want to run the West End Games D6. And we're like, okay. (laughs) So, and then the third thing, I want to run alternate prequels. So this is before the sequel trilogy came out, right? This is still back in the day. Um, I think Disney had just bought Star Wars. Okay. He's like, okay, well, if uh, if the prequels were different, if George Lucas had never got his mitts on them, what would they be like, <laughs> according to Rodney? And we ran this fantastic trilogy of adventures. Um, we had people playing Obi-Wan and we had people playing Anakin. And Anakin was not some little kid who was a slave that we picked up on a desert planet. He was a swoop gang punk. Yes. <laughs> and, um, but I mean, he still had that, that, uh, that emotional uh, instability because he, he wanted to make things happen. And, but he was held back by the Jedi. The Jedi were more like, there wasn't really a Jedi council. It was sort of a, like, um, we're wander, wandering mystics who brought about good and justice in the old Republic. Right. Um, we had a guy who provided the um, genetic material for the clone troopers, right? Which was pretty great. Um, he, he was our soldier guy. And we had my character who was a, uh, a Faleen ambassador that they just happened to connect with who helped them off, get off planet once. And um, she was very like flirtatious in the way that Faleen are supposed to be because, you know, they have that pheromone ability where they make people like have difficulty focusing around them, et cetera. Um, and it was, it was going great. We we're having adventures. Boba Fett showed up, disintegrated the princess that we thought was Luke and Leia's mother. And we were like, Oh my God. <laughs> Luke and Leia's mother was a Jedi named, um, I forgot her name, but she was actually the sister of Baru Lars, okay. not the not Owens, eh, whatever. Anyway, um, we were going along, having adventures, going from planet to planet, um, and we're having this battle with this fleet of Star Destroyers, and all looks lost. There's an interdictor that's keeping everybody from getting away, and um, the fleet is slowly being sucked into like a black hole, and everyone's like what do we do what do we do what do we do there's too much armor we can't we can't shoot uh, the proton torpedo if we could get past the armor we could shoot a proton torpedo into the interdictor save everybody and i'm like fine i look at rodney rodney gives me the nod and i'm like okay and i just i my character uses the force and starts tearing the ed the armor off the star destroyer and everyone's like holy shit what's happening find the torpedoes obviously and that was the end of part two and part three revealed that my character was indeed a force user because I was the secret Sith apprentice of the emperor. Nice. The whole time. And then in part three, I was trying to get Anakin to join me in destroying the emperor. And uh, Anakin's wife cut me down, but I threw her in the lava. So we died together. And then Anakin looked at the emperor because we we're confronting him on Mustafar, as you do and said, why didn't you save her? And the emperor looks at Anakin and says, why didn't you? That's a great way to end that. <laughs> and that was, wow. that was Darth Vader right there. Yeah, yeah. So very, very nice. One of the best gaming moments. 
The World of Ruins series. Excellent. Where did that start? Obviously, we mentioned that a little bit earlier. Um, I, I wrote the first thing that would eventually become uh, the World of Ruins series in, I think, 2002, 2003. Um, and it was fueled a little bit by the politics of the time. Um, not not an exclusively in a left-right sort of thing, but in a like, the world is falling apart. Environmentally, we are heading toward a crash and no one seems to be doing shit about it. And so, um, I mean, the bad guys that I put in power were definitely the bad guys that I considered to be in power, right? Okay. No, no doubt there. But World of Ruin, the concept is, is it's a post-apocalyptic fantasy series. It's a little bit like, I describe it as Game of Thrones meets Fallout. Okay. Thousands of years ago, the world was at peace, a world of wonder, magic, devices that could fly people vast distances, uh, uh, cooking marvels, transportation. Um, everyone was happy. Everyone was fulfilled until there was a great war that shattered the environment. And the only people that survived dug deep, deep, deep into fortresses beneath the earth where they could wait out the magical radiation that gripped the planet. Uh, all of them waiting the completion of the prophecy of return, you know, when it would be safe to return to the surface of the planet. Some people misinterpreted the prophecy and emerged a little bit too early and the roving magic mutated and warped them into the barbaric children of ruin who exist only to destroy and tear down vestiges of civilization as they try and rebuild themselves. So my books pick up several hundred, uh, a thousand, even a, almost a thousand years after people have returned to this now um, environmentally shattered world. And most of the made cities have fallen. Barbarians or infighting or just the environment have caused them to crumble. And there are two remaining, one of which fell to barbarians 20 years ago and is still kind of slowly deteriorating. And there's one last remaining made city. And that's where the action takes place. The king, the Winter King, the book is called Shadow of the Winter King. The Winter King was murdered several years ago by his closest bodyguard, who happens to be the main character's, like a, a close friend, former lover, who also vanished. And now the main character who was the assassin for the king, like the king would, sit, would dispatch him to go forth and, and kill enemies to win wars, that kind of thing is lost, has no direction. His king is dead, his princess is dead. The city is fallen into the hands of his enemies and rivals of his former, his former lord. And that woman who killed the king comes back into his life and asks him for a favor to hunt down the real assassins who really brought about the fall of the, of the winter king. And so that's the premise of the book is okay. they go off on this quest to hunt down these assassins. And it is dark and violent and hard R. And you I got film stuff, PG-13. Right. Maybe, maybe a little bit hard, PG-13. <clears throat> the World of Ruin stuff definitely R. 
if you're considering giving it to your kids to read, read it first. <laughs> and there are, you just came out with book four? Yes? No? Book four recently came out. Yes. Uh, um, beginning of May, I believe. Okay. Um, book four is the end for now. I might eventually return to it. Um, I do have more stories to tell. They would be about the next generation of the characters, okay. like the children of the survivors of this original series. Okay. And not everyone makes it out. And they are all on Amazon, if I'm not mistaken. I think mm -hmm. I saw them on there. Yep. And I think I have them on our link. Fun books. Very much enjoyed writing. They are very dark fantasy. And the art on them is beautiful. Just fantastic oh, art about them. I know you wanted fantastic. to say something about that because I mentioned it earlier off stream. I was like, these are beautiful. So when we were doing the art for the very first novel for Shadow of the Winter King, um, uh, the publisher, um, Gwent Gades uh, at Dragon Moon Press um, was putting together the art for this. And um, she tapped someone in particular, uh, Alita Rafton, I believe is her name. I don't know her personally. I only see her name in the credits, uh, who is pretty well known for like her romance novel covers and said, okay, we're gonna have her uh, do this. You write up an art order. What do you think the cover should look like? And I'll send it to her and we'll see what she sends back. And I'm like, great, sounds perfect. So I do that. Um, my main character, he's this, you know, grizzled, middle-aged, um, Assassin's Creed looking dude, right? right? Uh, in, a, in a dark cloak with a sword. It's a wavy, uh, they call it a, a falcat in the, in the world, which is kind of similar to a falcata, right? Right. Um, which glows with blue magic. And he's in a wintry landscape and there's a mountain behind him and, and a city built into the mountain. Okay, that's what the cover looks like. Uh, there might be an image, I don't know. But what, what we got back for the original draft is this extremely hot looking dude, vest, no shirt, holding a sword, standing out in the snow, short hair, no, he has like a little bit of beard, like swashbuckler beard, I think. Yeah. And like clearly romance novel cover. And um, Gabrielle, my editor, and I both looked at it. We're like, oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we have some notes. <laughs> First is, it's cold outside, put a shirt on. <laughs> but um, yeah, it, and it eventually evolved into the, uh, what it is today. In fact, I was, I was a little bit worried that it would look too much like an Assassin's Creed character. Right. So I reached out to one of my friends who works at Ubisoft and said, hey, so this is the cover of my book. Does this guy look like Ezio Auditore? And he's like, you should probably change the color of the sash. But otherwise, I think we're right. good. I'm like, but OK, it, so that's just, why he has a silver sash instead of a red sash. Just for the record, when I'm looking at books, I look for characters on the cover that look just like that. Nice. Like I, I go, I go, this guy. This is, looks like because I'm very much the the anti-hero rogue or assassin -y type novel reader. Like those are the characters yep. I'm drawn to. Uh, mm -hmm. So I see something like that and I go, oh, that's 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 probably a book I can get into. Let me read the back of it. Unless, awesome. of course, one of my friends tells me you need to read this book. And then I 
chalk it up. <laughs> I have such a hard time when a friend recommends a book to me. I was like, as soon as someone says you need to read this, I go, no, I don't. <laughs> I've, I've awesome. changed over the years, but. Um, yeah. So currently I, I like how many, those anti-heroes. They're, how many, they're how many role-playing game campaigns do you have going on right now? Oh my God. Um, okay. So I'm only running one. Okay. And that's my Twitch game. Uh, it, we're on Wednesday nights, 6.30 Pacific time on um, the uh, twitch.tv slash dungeon scrawlers. Scrawl like writing. Because the conceit is that we're all a bunch of writers, right? Um, and uh, that takes place in Westgate in the Forgotten Realms. Uh, City of Thieves, Den of Scum and Villainy. Um, the PCs have been killing off a lot of that scum and villainy over the last few uh, se- <laughs> last few seasons. So it occurred to me today that like I need to replace the assassins with just a bunch of like random people. They're like, I was a porter yesterday, and then someone handed me this knife. Ah, because <laughs> <laughs> they have killed at least ten assassins from the from the monster manual, and there can't be that many anyway. Right. Um, Let's see. And I'm in several other games. I'm in Nate's game that I mentioned, the uh, turn of the century uh, <coughs> gaslight sort of uh, game. What system is that? Uh, we use the cipher system. Okay. Um, specifically the, uh, the um, setting neutral cipher system, not the strange, not um, Numenera, but the, the other cipher rule book that came out okay which is great we're having a good time um i'm also in a star wars game where i play and i'm sure this will come as no surprise to anyone who's been listening so far a um former jedi uh woman in heavy armor with a uh purple lightsaber pike and it has like a little red uh, Shoto that comes out of the other end, but most people don't know that, so she just uses it for surprise. Anyway, um, and she is a former Inquisitor, of course. Anyway, um, and trying to figure out that morality. Yeah, that game is pretty fun. Um, I am in two Tuesday games that alternate okay. Tuesday night. Uh, one is a D and D game. I play an Elven Ranger. I know, I know, Ranger. Anyway. Um, but I have yet to be hit in that campaign, which is great. Like, um, I think the DM is not quite prepared for how I will get out of range and shoot people with my bow. Like I'm very mobile and I will jump up on top of rocks and I will slide down slopes and there's yes, very much, um, very much in the kill things take their stuff sort of vein and then my other tuesday game is currently a forbidden lands game um which i don't know if you're familiar it's a game system that kind of recently came out it's a lot more uh exploration based there's a hex map and you 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 roll checks to um travel through hexes okay and that will determine how many how many uh how well you do if you have complications okay and then there's you know actual battle that happens too um i think that's it for the moment okay. so i'm cool. in like what what was that six six games yeah six. It's, it's a, maybe on the a low lot. end but no i'm just kidding <laughs> well it, i have been in as many as like 10 or 12 games right. at a time and this, so this feels like a well, lower 
And I'm sure there's one-offs that are in there. There's one that's like, yeah, yeah. whenever we can schedule it, we throw that game in there. I'm sure that there's always those, those games as well. I ran a um, void heart symphony game for a while, which is a um, powered by the apocalypse system. Um, And it's like, it's a little bit like if persona, the Shin Megami Tensei series persona were a little bit more gritty. That's okay. what Void Heart Symphony is like. Oh. Um, and I was in a Burning Wheel game that um, Peter Atkinson was running, which was pretty cool. Um, I played another rogue, real stabby. Always, always getting himself into trouble. Those are the best <laughs> kinds of characters. Exactly. Making things. Apparently, happen. we can't ever play in the same game because we just make the same characters. Yes. Well, occasionally, pre- occasionally I'll make a sorcerer and they'll be the same, right? You know, rambling mess. <laughs> uh, my last time I played a sorcerer, my philosophy was uh, the solution to every problem is fireball. Because if it doesn't solve your problem, at least you have a new problem. Right. That's a bad theory. <laughs> do, you prefer, do you prefer to GM or to be a player? Man, that's a really good question. I, I know I it's think, it's like asking someone Led Zeppelin or Pink Floyd, but you have yeah. to answer it. So yeah, you don't have to answer it. You can okay, just say, audience. Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd were bands. It's fine. Um, <laughs> so let's see. I think a lot of the time I have found myself DMing. Although recently, during the pandemic specifically, I played a lot more, uh, and that has been nice. It's been comfortable. But I think I have this tendency to embrace the mechanics more when I'm a player and okay. become more of that sort of murder hobo-y sort of player. <laughs> and I'm not saying that like that's a good thing. I'm yeah. just saying like I, I have a certain amount of relief and a certain amount of pent-up anxiety and frustration with players doing this. And I'm like, I got to see what all the fun's about. And then I played my kill everything and don't ask questions sorcerer and i i understand <laughs> there was a time when my sorcerer and her hexblade swashbuckler buddy were in a, a globe of darkness that the hexblade had cast hexblade could see through it obviously you know double sight right optimized for this mm-hmm. played by uh, jen kreshmer who is a really great um activist uh designer she worked on um candle keep mysteries see i just keep pimping people i'm sorry about that that's okay i'm just um, gonna write them all down and i'm gonna contact them all later It'd be like excellent but anyway we're standing there back to back my fire fire dragon red dragon fire sorcerer standing back to back with this warlock who is just like picking off enemies who who stuff to us right and i'm throwing fireballs at will just out of the darkness i don't care who they're going to hit. The PCs know to stay out of the way. <laughs> While I'm also maintaining concentration on my animate objects. So I'm also beating the bad guys to death with chairs and offering bowls because we're inside a church. We demolished that church. It was... Poor church. Oof. Well, it was a weirdo cult that had sprung up to um, uh, take people's money, mostly. Anyway. <laughs> well, to, Which to, is what cults are mostly about. But yeah, that's true. To slowly wrap it up here, um, yeah. your Twitter is ah. at, it's, at it's your, Eric, Eric Scott DeBase. My at name. Eric Scott DeBase. And they can find you. Do you have any other social media that you want to you throw I out there? I have a website, ericscottdebase.com. 
um, you'll find my bibliography there. You'll find the last uh, blog post that I wrote, which was some months ago. <laughs> I don't update it all that regularly, but it's a good place to go because there'll be links for my works and, and whatnot. You got uh, any you place you're going to find me on Facebook. I'm often there and on Twitter. And obviously come uh, watch the Dungeon Scrawlers because it's real fun. Yeah. We're currently between seasons. Um, I left things on a big cliffhanger because I always leave things on a big cliffhanger. Um, I'm going to leave the stream on a big cliffhanger probably. Uh, but anyway, uh, we're between seasons right now. And that means we're doing like the experimental fun stuff that we wanted to do during the season, but we kind of derailed the campaign. So mm -hmm. uh, last week we interviewed members of the audience who would come through Discord onto the actual stream uh, for an accountant position because no one in the party knows how to manage money. And we actually did hire one of the uh, one of the people nice. who is now an NPC in our game. And occasionally he may come and guest. So that was That'll pretty fun. And awesome. this week there's some kind of murder mystery happening on Wednesday. So okay. Well, fun. we did link that on our stream. We'll throw that up on our website. Uh, it's been great having you here. Um, very much appreciate it. Is there going to yeah, be any place that people are going to be able to find you? Are you going to any conventions or anything coming oh, up, or are you holding off yeah. for this year? Uh, you know, I almost went to Gen Con this year, but um, a lot of my friends who go weren't going to be there. Okay. And uh, the scheduled over Yom Kippur, and I wasn't super thrilled with that. So yeah. I am standing in solidarity with uh, my friends who weren't big into it. And yeah. also, you know, there's the pandemic to consider. Right, too. exactly. Well, I just, I had to ask if there was any place that you were going to be out promoting things. Yeah. Make sure to, uh, make sure to sorry, let people Nick. know. <laughs> I love conventions. I often go to Norwest Con. I often okay. go to Gen Con. I am occasionally at Emerald City Comic Con. I live in Seattle, so it's pretty easy to get there. Um, I think once the pandemic is over and done with, once the vaccine hesitancy sort of falls apart and we get up to that level of herd immunity, then I'll start going to cons again. Cause I, I really miss it. You know, right. I, I like seeing people that I don't see very often and it's been like two years, man. Exactly. <laughs> so. Awesome. Well, for those listening to the podcast, uh, thank you for listening. It's been very much appreciated for you all downloading this. Tell your friends, uh, you can find information at epicrealmsmedia.com. For everybody in the live stream, stick around. We're going to answer some questions here in a bit. So for everybody listening, thank you very much. Thank you, Eric, for joining us. You've been You're listening to welcome. Epic Realms. Well, there you are. I hope you enjoyed yourselves. And I do hope that you come back and join us again for Epic Realms. Epic Realms.